Yo, how's it going? <laughs> this is Hal in Philly, and I'm super excited about today's episode. In fact, my conversation with my guest today was so compelling, we ended up talking for well over an hour. So I divided this into two parts. And I even had enough left over for a short bonus episode, which you'll find on my other podcast, Easy When You Know How. I'll link to it in the show notes. Welcome to part one of Steve Shacklin on Tales of the Road Warriors. Steve Shacklin is a singer-songwriter, a playwright, a composer, a survivor of one of the worst epidemics to hit mankind since the plague. I'm talking about AIDS. Steve went on to write the music and lyrics to the multi-award winning musical The Last Session with his lifetime partner and husband, Jim Brochu, with additional lyrics by John Bettis and Marie Kane. The musical is about a singer-songwriter who has decided to commit suicide to end his battle with AIDS, but only after one last recording session in the studio. It first debuted off-Broadway in 1997. He's the author of of possibly the longest-running or one of the longest-running blogs on the Internet. It's called Living in the Bonus Round. In fact, back then he called it an online diary because the word blog hadn't been invented yet. When he began, he didn't know if it would be one page or ten pages because he didn't know how much time he had left. As it turns out, he is still writing that story to this day, and you can find it in the show notes. For context, I will link to day one, in March of 1996, and there are very few stories like this anywhere else on the internet. Well, I hate spoilers, so I won't say much more about it. We do talk a little bit about a guy named Brett Perkins, so if you've been listening to Tales of the Road Warriors, I've actually talked to Brett on this show before. But for your information, after finding out that he had AIDS, Steve trained Brett to take his place as the West Coast Director of NAS, the National Academy of Songwriters. And I don't think you need any further introduction. As they say in the biz, let the show begin. Hello, Steve Shacklin. Well, here I am talking. Here I am speaking. Here I am telling my story. My amazing, dramatic, heart-stopping... I have a feeling you have more than one story. One or two. <laughs> Why all the L's in your name? Uh, uh, it's. I, I think I was born in an eye doctor's office, and you have to cover one hand with one eye in order to read my last name. <laughs> That's funny. The L's are silent. <laughs> the L, The first L is silent. Uh, right. Oh, that's right. The first L is silent because otherwise it would be Shachin. So otherwise it would be Shachin. And I think probably in Europe it's, it's like Schachlin. It's Swiss Germanic, so... so um, by the time my family made it to Arkansas, it turned into the Shacklins. Gotcha. So you sent me some notes, some uh, show notes, to, uh, like with talking points. Yes, a few little talking points. So I guess I should just start there. The first one says, Arrive Dallas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I came out of Southeast Texas, and I, was, I'm, I am the son of a Baptist minister. And basically, all I knew was church music. And when I was in high school, I was listening to pop music, junior high and high school, I was listening to AM radio. 
So my favorite groups were the Beatles and Creedence Clearwater and, and Neil Young, especially. He was my favorite. But I never got to be in a band mm-hmm. because my father, drinking and dancing, I wasn't allowed to be around drinking and dancing. So I didn't really get to be in a band. Right. And when I uh, then I went to a Baptist college in East Texas and was in a Baptist. Finally, I was in a band, but it was a Baptist rock and roll band. <laughs> I can't imagine. Just out of curiosity, you, you, did you have a little red AM radio? Did you did you have transistor uh, oh, I, radio? I, I, I probably did. I probably my- did. I think I remember junior high having a little transistor radio and the song that year was uh for what it's worth oh, uh, wow. from uh, across the silver nash because my first radio was this little red transistor i think it was am only if i'm not mistaken though and yeah I, and i was listening to like the chipmunks doing me i want a hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> oh you were real advanced there weren't you oh yeah that that song was my earworm I was. I think I was. I think I was all the way in junior high before I really started listening to, listening to pop music. My mother was in a gospel quartet, and so we would, uh, you know. So it was all really southern, southern church music. Yeah. What part of Texas are we talking? A little town called Buna, B-U-N-A, which is in the southeast corner, in the Golden Triangle area where uh, Janis Joplin and Johnny and Edgar Winter came from. And I went to high school there, but my family had moved around a lot because being a preacher's kid, you move around a lot. Right. And so I was born in Arkansas, but we moved out to Southern California, and then we moved back to Louisiana, and then we moved to Texas, and Texas is where I went to high school and college. And you waited at IHOP during high school, or that was after? Well, well, what happened is I was in my little... Jesus rock band. And finally one day I was doing two, two things were happening to me at once. One was that I was coming out of the closet to myself. Right. And this being, this being the mid seventies and being in that cultural bubble as a gay man, I had no references on how to come out or whether I could come out. I just knew that I was going to burn in hell forever. <laughs> well, yeah. Being the son and, of a preacher had some major impact on you. Yeah, and my parents were not really hard, hard, tough people in that sense. But the people I was around after moving out of the house were much more fundamentalist style evangelists that I would run into. And um, there was this one guy who said, well, you know, according to the Bible, as soon as someone says, according to the Bible, turn and run, because you know it's not going to be good. He, he he was what they call a Calvinist, and Calvinists believe that if I was gay, it meant that Jesus or God didn't choose me from before time, and so there was no way that I was ever going to achieve salvation, and it was proof that I would never be saved. Well, what it led to was I thought, well, if I'm never going to be saved anyway, I may as well just get the hell out of town and go live a life. You right. know, it was one of those moments, what I did was I packed up my car from East Texas and I drove to Dallas. And when I got to Dallas, I uh, got a job uh, waiting tables at IHOP. And I started going down in in, in a place called Denton, Texas. And I was living with some Iranian foreign exchange students before the revolution. Uh 
And I would drive down to Dallas and find the nearest, nearest gay bar and hang out and then come back up and then go back down. And somewhere in there, someone suggested to me, they found out that I was a musician and they said, hey, there's this theater, a dinner theater in Dallas called the Grand Crystal Palace, and they're looking for a singer. And I said, well, I can sing. So I showed up to do this audition. Now, understanding I'd never seen any theater before. I didn't know any musical theater. I didn't know any jazz songs. I didn't know the I didn't know like Frank Sinatra. I didn't know anything except gospel and pop. So I stood in the corner of this piano and I sang a Stevie Wonder song with my eyes nailed down straight to my feet. It was the worst audition a person could ever do for musical theater because I knew nothing. But Mm. halfway through the song, there was this really high note and I sang this really high note. And the old guy sitting out who was judging us said, eh, he can do it. And that's how I got my job in theater. <laughs> and thanks to IHOP, I knew how to wait tables. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my first job waiting tables was as soon as I landed in Los Angeles. I specifically drove out there just to get a job as a singing waiter. So that's, ah. where, that's where I probably met a lot of people you and I know in common. Yeah, so as 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 I, first of all, I couldn't dance at all. I had Baptist feet. I had never been to a dance because I wasn't allowed to, much less dance theatrically. So they just kind of kept me in the back row. And uh, what I what I found out later was the tenor, who was kind of the star of the, of the of the company, he was going on vacation whether they hired somebody or not. He because he didn't like the way the place was run. So they hired me simply because the other guy was going to leave and they needed that voice. And that was my entree into theater in Dallas. And uh, I made good money because it was a really high-class restaurant. And I started writing songs for the little musical reviews. Yeah, the Grand Crystal Palace. They had one in Aspen, Colorado also. And in my notes, uh, you mentioned Nancy Boys, Lauren and Chris, Show Band, and Side Pop Band. (laughs) Well, now, some of that's L.A., but uh, in Dallas, I was uh, there was a show band. Uh, the, the place was coming apart; it was falling apart. Uh, I got a job as a musical director in a like Vegas style show band, and as we traveled around doing, mostly we did hotels like roadway inns and bars and stuff like that. One of my favorite or really horrendous road stories, or sad road stories is that we were at the Roadway Inn in Columbus, Ohio, on the night John Lennon was assassinated. And we were doing a set in a bar in the snow for one person. And we went back to our rooms uh, after like the third set, and I got the news about John Lennon. And I, we came back out, and by then the band just said, Steve, just get on the piano and sing. Nobody's here. It doesn't matter. And I got on the piano and I sang Imagine all the way through without ever having sung it before. I just remembered the way I just remembered it in my head. Wow. And it's one of those magical moments as a musician where you just can picture the song in your head. And I just sang it. And I'll never forget that night. Yeah. I was but tending eventually. Bar. Yeah. Go I, ahead. I was tending bar that night at the blue lagoon saloon. And I think <laughs> moon Martin was playing that night, but anyway, Oh, moon. Yeah, and his song was on the jukebox, and Elvis Costello's song, Accidents Will Happen, was playing when I heard the news. 
Wow. And uh, and that song I, that that song always that was always one of my favorite songs. But all of a sudden, it took on a new meaning. You know, just the words "accidents will happen" because obviously that was no accident. But right, I, I wanted to go home. I didn't want to attend bar after that. It's like I can't do this. But I powered through. Yeah, it was a tough night to get through. It really was. I remember I called my best friend, Diane, who lived in, in New York, and I just said, and we, we just commiserated over it. Diane it would be, really... yeah, she'd be the one with the couch. <laughs> yes. Yes, after the band broke up, I moved to New York, and I lived on her couch, and I, had, I came to New York with $50 in my pocket and a microphone, a leftover microphone, and uh, that's all I got from the band. Huh. I hope it was and, a Shure uh, SM58. Yeah, SM58, exactly. <laughs> so, so I was living on Columbus Avenue, and I decided to, to find a job waiting tables, and I got a job uh, at a fish restaurant called Dobson's, and it is. And um, also, I had gone to a, a gay bar, a piano bar, called Bogart's. And on a Friday night, I was uh, listening to the piano player, and I, I met him between sets. And I said, oh, I'm a piano player and a singer, and I'm new in town. And the next day, he calls me, and he says, I've got laryngitis. <laughs> Do you think you could fill in for me tonight? Well, I didn't have a set. But then I hadn't played any songs in a long time. I still didn't know any musical theater. Just a few things that, we, that I barely remember from Dallas. And I, it was one of those one of those moments where I thought, well, I can either say yes or I can say no. And uh, on the way to the gig, I bought a bunch of fake books and sat down, opened a fake book, and just started sight reading music. Did you already know how to sight read? <laughs> I already knew how to read music. I could read music, and so, uh, but I didn't know the names of the popular songs, so I was just kind of picking things at random. And I got through my first set. I remember I could do moon dance. Yeah, I could do a, a few, like just bar standards, uh, some Beatles songs, some Neil Young songs, uh, stuff that I already kind of knew. Some of them were in the books. Right. And uh, but I remember one at one moment I, I was I just opened up. Somebody said, "Can you sing Smoke Hits in Your Eyes?" And I thought, "Okay." So I opened it up and I found Smoke Hits in Your Eyes. I started to sing it. And I got to the bridge. Now, if you know the bridge of smoke, it's in your eyes. It's impossible. It right. goes off into a key that is unbelievable. And since I hadn't heard it before, I didn't know where I was going. And I just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've done songs like that where the bridge throws me. It might not have been that one, but there's other songs that have, where you get to the bridge and that happens. And it, it, you just fall apart and just go, okay, next. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do that. Well, I got through two sets and then I repeated my first set. And my stomach, I was so nervous. My stomach was hurting so bad. I, could, I couldn't even breathe. And I just told the bartender, I said, look, I got to go home. I'm sick as a dog. So I went home. I thought, I have blown it. This is the worst thing in the world. And they called me the next week. They wanted me to start doing Monday nights and Tuesday nights, you know, those slower nights. Yeah. So I ended up getting a regular gig. Well, anyway, as I was waiting there at the restaurant, I'm still waiting in the restaurant during the daytimes. And a guy, a guy came in to sit at my table, and it was the musical director from Dallas, from the theater. Oh. And, and he said, oh, hey, uh, do you want a chip gig? And I was said, he just visiting? Gig. He was just visiting there at the time, or 
Yeah, he was just sitting at my table. I was just waiting on him. It was like pure accident. Serendipity. Yeah. And he says, oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're your guy. You're good. He said, uh, look, they wanted me to do a ship gig, but I don't want to do it. You want to do a ship gig? And they went, okay. So I got on this cruise ship, and uh, they started doing, out of New York, they started doing these cruise, cruises to nowhere. Basically, it's a gambling cruise where they go out past the three-mile limit and all these hoodlums. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this wasn't there. a regular cruise where you were gone for three months at a time. This was like a local cruise? Kind of yeah, thing. well, they were. It was a, it was a, a ship that they had just refitted, so they were testing it out. Uh-huh. And and they were they were uh, going out in the middle of the ocean. They were gambling, and I mean, by the time we we, got, we landed, <laughs> they they stripped that ship bare. Every plant was gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was hysterical. It, it, is there a particular <laughs> story you remember from from working on on the uh, ship? Because the cruise ships always have some kind of mishap. Well, yes. Uh, about a month or two after we started doing that, all of a sudden I got on the ship to go because we were coming in every day. So I was staying, you know, I was living at home. So we, I got on the ship and they said, oh, we're not coming back for five days. We're going to Bermuda. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> told me. I, I had on my tux. That's all of the clothes I had. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. So uh, we went to Bermuda, Bermuda, we came back, we started doing Florida and everything. Well, this ship was, it was an old, beautiful liner from the 40s. And it got purchased by a Greek shipping company who were, this is 1984. And they <clears throat> had decided they wanted to break into the shipping industry because it was kind of new. Nowadays, the modern cruise industry is gigantic. It's one of the biggest industries in the world. But back then, it was just getting started. The revival of it, I mean. They they had they could only get the ship in their agreement with the Italian government if they hired an X number of Italian crew. So they put Italians in the in the casino and in the restaurant as waiters and cooks. The, the Greeks that uh, on this particular ship it was run like a military dictatorship. They didn't really know how to do modern cruising, so it was run like a like the, the military. Right. And they were being really mean to all the passengers, not the passengers. They would shout at the crew and they would kick them and they would curse at them oh. and they would hit them. And it was just a, a, an, an incredible experience. I was the only American on board. Well, at one point, a, a Greek officer came in one night into the restaurant late at night. And he, he, uh, he confronted this Italian cook and said, make me, make me, you make me something to eat. And the Italian was cleaning up and he either said, no, I don't know what the deal was. But anyway, anyway, the Greek guy hit the Italian cook. Oh my God. Well, this cook was a huge man and he picked up the Greek officer and threw him across the kitchen, put a huge gash in his head. So they decided to fire the cook. Well, now we're cruising now to Nassau in the Bahamas. Right. All the Italians decide that they've had enough and they decide to mutiny. So, Picture this: you're 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 a passenger on a beautiful cruise ship, and you're you're at Nassau, and you're descending the stairs onto the port, and down on the dock, there are 150 Italians screaming and yelling and rioting, yelling, "Down with the Greeks! Down with the Greeks!" 
you're in the middle of the Greek Italian War. Want to shut? It was fantastic. <laughs> well, the one thing you don't do in a military dictatorship is upset the captain, is embarrass the captain. Well, right. they the, the 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 Italians won because what are they going to do? Not sail with a, with you know restaurant casino crew, and so the Italians won the fight, and the, the next the next that the Greek officer got thrown off off the ship at the next port. So they kept the cook. They kept the cook. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Burgers for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for like 13 months, and that's what I met Jimmy, my uh, current husband. Current husband, I say current. We've been together now for 35 years, I guess. Yeah, but, congratulations. Uh, now, now yeah. that's where you met him on that cruise, or, or, or during that. That's time? where I met him. I, I was, uh, in fact, I used the cruise to learn the American Songbook. I brought all my fake books, and I had to play five hours a day at, at different hours. You know, like before lunch, after lunch, cocktail hour right. at night. So I, I learned all the, all the musical theater, and I learned the American Songbook, and it was a great year of just sheer learning music in front of an audience. Because most of them don't pay attention anyway. Right. They're drinking, they're talking, okay, yeah. and I'm, yeah, I'm just background. Yeah, I call it musical wallpaper, because I do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a fine gig for me, because it meant that I could learn all of this music that I never learned before and get better as a musician, too, because you play five hours a day, you're going to get better at it. But after 13 months, Jimmy, I met Jim and uh, we left the ship and we eventually moved to New York. I mean, we, we, we were living in New York and then he, he wrote a script and we ended up going out to and moving to Los Angeles. And it was a it was a script that he wrote that Disney uh, optioned. Was it a movie or a movie or a TV show? It was going to be for a TV show, but a Disney development hell, it never worked out. But anyway, we moved out to LA, and I didn't really know what I was going to do because I didn't I didn't really know anyone in LA, and that's how NAS, the National Academy of Songwriters, happened. Uh, Al Casher, the songwriter, who was a friend of Jim's, said, "Well, you should go to NAS and learn about the music business." So I showed up at the front door, and I had never really had a desk job before. I certainly didn't know anything about the business. Right. They, they put me on the front desk. If you remember, we had an 800 number that anybody in the country could call if they had a question about the music industry. That was one of our deals. So they put me on the 800, <laughs> me who knew nothing. <laughs> you were the 800 guy. I'm the 800 guy to answer all the questions from everybody out in the country who calls in. Well, what a great learning experience for me because I didn't know the answers, so I had to look up the answers or ask other people the answers or call and ask the answers. So by, by, by being the guy on the information line, I learned about music publishing. I learned about lawyers. I learned about song pitching, uh, ASCAP and BMI. That was usually the question, which one's better, ASCAP or BMI? Uh, or how do I get my song listened to? You know, that's usually what people want to know. Right. Well, fortunately, back then, you could just refer everybody to John Brahaney because he'd be the best person to listen to anybody's song at the time, I think. Right. And we also had song listening things. So uh, Yeah, the pitches, uh, the cassette roulettes and stuff. In fact, once I learned about John, and there was kind of a little rivalry between LASS, John's group, and NAS. 
And I, I said, rivalries are stupid. And I called them up immediately my first week in town. And I went and met with them and said, how can we work together? So you, you did know, that. I, I, good, good yeah. on you. Well, because I don't understand rivalry. Rivalry's stupid. Yeah. And, and it, it may be that other people also did that. But I, I definitely did that. See, uh, when I got to L.A., the two organizations were still separate, and I didn't understand the difference. I didn't know if they were connected. Like, I never could figure that out. You just you just solved it for me just now. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think probably they were they were rivals mostly because there's the songwriter dollar. They have to survive, so. Right, and a, they were both membership little... organizations, so they were kind of competing for, your, for the buck. Yeah, exactly. So I understood um, why there would be a rivalry, but I didn't. I didn't go in there having a, a, an understanding of the history of the two organizations. Right. All I knew was they helped. My job was to help songwriters. How can I get? How can I partner with them to make sure that songwriters get help? Because I just didn't really care about having rivalry. I just thought it was stupid. Because if you feed each other. Actually, more people will in, get involved in both. Right. Because what now, you want are opportunities. And where did you stand with um, the Songwriters Guild? I didn't really have much contact with them at first. They were a little standoffish. Uh, the Songwriters Guild at that time, especially, uh, they were more of a professional um, lobbying organization out of Nashville, and they, they kind of were doing their own thing that I could tell. Right. And LASS and NAS were more on the, on the street. So I, I, honestly, I didn't really, I don't think so I even knew about them. You didn't really have an awareness of them very much. I right? didn't have an awareness of them. Uh, also, I think their membership is a little, was, I don't know how it is now, it was a little more inclusive. You know, you had to be a member and you had to do all kinds of things. And we, we had open door policies and so did LASS. Right. So I, uh, I just didn't really know that much about them. And I think their corporate headquarters in Nashville didn't really like the fact that we were there. But that, that was my recollection. But anyway, after I, I was there for about nine months or yeah. a year, and then we had the big the Salute to the American Songwriter concert was how we made a lot of our money, and that was the year... Kevin Odegaard, the old, the old guard of everybody who had been there before, Madeline Smith, Mark Spears. Kevin had made this big deal with VH1, and they were going to they, they videotaped the salute. And that's the first one that I went to. Well, that was a six-hour taping that yeah. everyone hated. And I it ended up not... I, remember, I volunteered at that one. Oh, did you? Yeah, and you know what happened? Yeah. I, got, I got sick as a dog. I was... Um, I, I realized while I was walking, down, down, I was uh, showing Jimmy Webb to his seat. That was my first assignment. And while I'm walking wow. him to a seat, I started to feel the flu. Like I, I, like I knew I was getting sick. It was, just oh. came on like suddenly. And the next person they had assigned me to escort to a seat was Graham Nash. And my head was swirling from the fever. And I probably would have passed out even if I was well because it was Graham Nash, you know. <laughs> But I didn't want to make him sick, and I don't know if it was you or Dan, or I don't know who I reported to. I can't remember, but 
I just remembered. It was probably Dan. I didn't have much to do with that first one. I was still kind of the volunteer. Yeah. And I didn't know everything that was going on. I think mostly I attended. My recollection is I attended as uh, as just a uh, a person in the audience. Uh, so anyway, they said, you know, he said, well, if you don't feel good, you know, go home. We'll cover it. But I was so upset that I missed that. I, you know, that I was so looking forward to that day. But I, I, I was like, I, I panicked when they said, you know, Graham Nash. I'm like, I don't want to make Graham Nash sick. Right. <laughs> well, it ended up being a great show, but it was a disaster for the organization, for NAS uh, financially, I think. Because uh, I, I never got all these stories directly, I'm sort of presuming. And um, the place was way, way, way under into debt, almost $60,000 in debt. And they Holy. had to let all, they had to let everybody go. So Kevin went, Madeline went, Mark went, and um, in other words, everybody around there who knew anything, except for me and Dan Kirkpatrick and Paul Zolo on the newspaper. But Paul was basically taking care of the newspaper. He right. wasn't involved in the everyday business. And so Danny and I got in a room. Uh, he went to, to talk to the board, and the board said, well, look, we don't have any money. The place is really gone. Kevin's gone. Why don't, we'll just close up all the offices go down to a phone and we'll just say goodbye. So Danny and I had a meeting between the two of us and we said, what if we not do that? What if we don't follow the board's advice and instead keep it open? And I said, if you will handle the money and the corporate, I will handle the services and I will figure out a way to get this place going again. And he said, all right, if you'll do that, I'll do this. And that was my, really, the beginning of the revival of NAS wow. is I started getting people to volunteer in the office to do all of the work. And I started setting up a workshop or a seminar of something almost every night of the week. So I was working up there 12 and 14 hours a day. And I was, I was working all day long, and then I would run the workshops at night, and we would charge $3, $5, whatever, for people to come to these seminars of produce the workshops. Yeah, I, I remember taking one with uh, Barbara Jordan. Uh, ah, yeah. The way I kept it going, and this was just pure instinct, is I told all the volunteers, I said, if you will volunteer here or intern here, whenever anybody calls our office from the industry, I will, if they're looking for interns in a legitimate business, because we were a nonprofit, but like if a, if a publisher or a lawyer or a songwriter, somebody wants an intern, whoever is the best worker for me, I will give you away. <laughs> I will let you go to the best job. That way, it gave incentive for people to work really hard for, in, in my office, knowing that I wouldn't hang on to the best workers. I would give the best workers away. And, and I, I really think that that, that was a very smart move because we got good people in there and then they moved on and they started working for other people. And so NAS became a supplier of, you know, for people who wanted to get into the business. But after a year, we were $56,000 in debt. After a year, we had brought all the way up and got us out of debt. And, and I'm very, very proud of, of having done that. And it was just through share. And one of the things that I did was I decided to turn that into a learning experience for myself. Whoever I wanted to meet in the music industry, 
like a famous attorney or, or an A&R person or a producer, I would call them and say, hello, I'm the services director at the National Academy of Songwriters. <laughs> would you like to come and do a seminar? Well, everybody in the business loves to be, you know, the go-to guy, the sure. expert in the room. And so they would come over and I would sit on the dais with him and we would do these workshops. And that's how I made all of my music industry contacts as well as getting a first-hand look at learning how the industry works from the inside out. So it was an education for me. It, was, it gave great services to our membership, and it attracted people to NAS so that we had a more robust you know, membership uh, and membership services. Right. Well, anyway, after I got sick... Yeah, what happened down here? When did you first find out? I tested positive in 1993, and then in 94 is when I got really sick. And um, that's when I tested positive. Now, Brett told, told this story on your, on your podcast oh, about yes. the day that I came in and told everybody. Right. And Brett had... Brett had, um, well, he had confided in me that it's a personal thing that when I told him I was gay, before I told him I was had AIDS, the year, probably in the year before um, I had told him, we got in a room together and he said, look, I, I want to tell you, I, I, have a little pro- I have a little problem with it and I'm uncomfortable. And I said to him, I completely understand. I'm good with that. I like the fact that you told me, and we can be just fine together. And if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to do or say anything you, you, that makes you uncomfortable. But I'm I'm completely good with it. And from then on, we had a great working relationship. But the day that I told him that I was HIV positive, he rushed up to me and he planted a kiss right on my lips. And I think it was the one of the greatest moments of just pure love from one human being to another that I've ever experienced because I knew how far he had come, not just fear of kissing somebody with HIV, but the whole gay thing and all of that. And I was really moved by it. And I was moved by everyone in the office. I didn't hold back a single detail. I told everybody on like the day after I tested positive, I told everybody. And, um, then I started getting sick, and I knew I had to leave. Now, Brett, tell the story. <laughs> I want you to know, I, do, I, I didn't beg him to stay. I begged him not to stay. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> I was trying to make a joke about it. Like, are you kidding? I sat from the table and told you, no, I don't want you to take over. <laughs> That's not really true. He, he was, I thought he was the best qualified to, because he could stand in front of people and talk. Yeah. You know. I know. That, so, you definitely made the right choice there. Brett was great. He's still great. I think the so. pawn shop the preachers. Wrong. Brett's pawn shop preachers. Now, the pawn shop. <laughs> the porn. Now, he told you that I told him that I didn't like his, his, his accents on that record. And then he defended it saying that it was, you know, that's where he comes from. Well, no, here's what I told him. I said, first of all, nobody sings like that. 
I said, that is not an, uh, he's been in Europe too long. That is not an authentic <laughs> Southern accent by any stretch of the imagination. It's a cornball accent, or in the voiceover industry, they call it doing a foghorn leghorn. The reason I said that to him is because I thought the songs that he wrote were really good. Yeah, they are. There's a couple of songs in there that I thought, there was one I mentioned, I forgot the name of it now, but there was one that I mentioned to him that I wrote him back, and I said, this is an incredibly incisive, brilliantly intellectual song. Just unbelievable, un- unlike anything I've ever heard him write, because mostly he writes like like pop, which is fine. Right. But this is a really deep number, and I... I, I can't remember the one it was. I he uh, I could go back and try to find out. But my point to him was, the song's too good to treat it like a joke. When when you're doing a fake Southern accent, you're telegraphing your punchline. You're telling everybody, "Hey, everybody, look! I'm telling the joke." Well, you can't you can't do that because then you undercut the seriousness of what you're writing, and, and it's not funny anymore. Right. You, you don't telegraph a joke. Or you don't telegraph a punchline. And that song has a punchline in it. So that was my criticism of him. And he gotcha. didn't take that very well. But probably because he spent all that money on recording it. So <laughs> I'm basically telling him, go back and do it again. <laughs> yeah, right. You got to re-record the whole thing. So so then when... But I, I took it as a compliment. I'm complimenting his music. Right. No, I understand. You know, I understand what you told him. That's the way I took it. From is that look, I'm saying really good things about your music because I don't think you should undercut what you've written by putting on cornball singing. Yeah, an affecting an accent that that's not your own. That's not your own, exactly. You know, so he can defend it all he wants, but I'm I'm still not going to give up. <laughs> <laughs> I like Brett. Everybody loves Brett. And that concludes part one of my conversation with Steve Shacklin. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't miss part two next week because he's got more great stories and a very special and profound message to anyone who wants to improve their life. I considered it a gift, and I think you will too. Remember to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app and sign up for the newsletter at talesoftheroadwarriors.com. All links to things we talked about on the show will be on the show notes page, and I will also include a full transcript for the hearing impaired below the show notes for this episode. That about wraps it up for me. Only one thing left to do. I'm going for a drive. Yeah, I'm going for a drive.